Google is a utility, an upended Supreme Court race, and Cedar Point pays a lot more money and solves its labor shortage. Lots of things to talk about this morning on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon and our chief politics writer, Seth Richardson. It's Wednesday, half the week's over, and, you know, a third of June is already over. It's like, what's oh. going on? The summer is disappearing before our eyes. It's not even officially summer yet, is it? <laughs> my kids are still in school for two days. I know. The days are getting longer. It's almost light out when I let the dog out. That's uh, That happens for about two weeks each year, and then the rest of the time I have to look <laughs> for skunks before I let her into the yard. And yet it's Let's... still finding a way to rain up here. <laughs> Let's get started. How does Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost argue that a search engine is a utility, but broadband is not? Jane Cahoon, I was so glad to see this perspective in the news story about Dave Yost, the latest publicity ploy where he's trying to attack Google as a utility. Take us through both what his new thing is and the hypocrisy involved in it. <laughs> so you're referring to this lawsuit that Yoast filed on Tuesday, seeking to declare Google a public utility. He filed it in Delaware County Common Police Court, and he wants the court to make the declaration as a way to ensure that Google can't prioritize its own products in search results. And uh, he claims this is the first suit of its kind uh, filed in the nation. Of course it is, because it's loony. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I fully understand the legal argument anyway. It, it just, it basically says that Google's search fun function meets the definition of a public utility because the nature of a company's operation is a matter of public concern, la, la, la. Anyway, that goes on. But what, what you really want to know is uh, what Yost said four years ago when he was running for attorney general and at that time, he and I'm going to give Seth Richardson a little shout out because he he remembered this uh, yesterday when we were working on the story. But uh, when he was running for attorney general, he argued that Ohio should not get involved in a lawsuit to make broadband Internet a public utility. This was a FCC case involving net neutrality. And he was asked, I believe, by the Columbus Dispatch, you know, whether as attorney general, he would get Ohio involved in that suit. And he said, no, 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 um, you know, it's we we shouldn't do that. Politics doesn't belong in the attorney general's office and a mere difference of opinion doesn't rise to the level of a lawsuit. But this time he says it's different in in an interview with Jeremy Pelzer. He said he said politics does belong in the attorney general's <laughs> office. <laughs> no, he said decisions about net neutrality and Google issues they you know they were involved different issues he said the net neutrality suit was based on you know allegations of technical violations that didn't implicate the process itself so that, that, that is that is just a ridiculous he's being ridiculous look broadband right now there are a lot of people saying it is the new utility when we came out of the 1918 pandemic uh, as eric gordon has pointed out the school ceo we were doing the electrification of America. We were rushing to get electricity and wires across the country so, because electricity was so desperately needed. That's broadband today. We need to get the broadband wires and access across the country, which is the definition of a utility. There's hardware involved. It's a big investment. Um, the, the people that provide that then have a, have a monopoly on it because they, they own the wires. That is clearly a utility. A well, search me, engine? 
is to, to say that's a utility is just preposterous. And it just seems like about half the stuff Dave Yost does seems like it's really smart and serving the people. And half the stuff he does seems like I'm just playing to the far right. I'm going to attack Google. I'm going to attack Facebook. But it's just silly to come out and say this is a utility. It's a search engine. There's a ton of competition for search engines. And I it just he's getting a headline, but at least on this podcast, it's not the headline he wants. Yeah, to well, me, it struck me as some just some red meat for a re-election, right? But it, the when you think about it, it's almost like saying the lamp you plug into the wall is a utility, but the electricity that comes out of that outlet is not a utility. That is sort of the way that I, I – it's probably an oversimplification of things. But, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I don't, I don't know, you know, what is the difference between, you know, the net neutrality lawsuit and him saying, we don't want to legislate from the court. That's not what we do. And then saying, well, Google this tech giant that is, you know, in the crosshairs, especially for Republicans. And we've got a Republican primary coming up is a utility. It's I, I, I think it's a pretty obvious, it's, just political move. Right. It's pure party politics. Net neutrality was was the bane of the Republicans when it was being debated. And he came up with this phony baloney explanation, which, Jane, you just said what it was. And it makes absolutely no sense. It's just words to not do it, arguing against the, the the fact that this is a public service utility. But then they come out now and say, well, I'm going after Google as a utility. Yeah, it's the only lawsuit of its kind because it's preposterous and silly and he should be embarrassed and he's embarrassing Ohio. Anybody want to disagree? No, I think, you know, just in, in talking about Yoast, you just have to wonder if he has broader political ambitions here. I, he has said he's running for re-election as attorney general, but remember his name came up in the U.S. Senate uh, race and then he, he bowed out of that. But, you know, I mean, I don't think uh, he wants the attorney general's office to be his last act. No, no, I don't either. I mean, he got national headlines from it because people are looking at this going, huh? Uh, so we'll have to see where it goes. I will say there, there was, was a... a- before we go, I will say I, I did find some humor in the slight dig that Google sent back in their statement by saying that, uh, you know, people in Ohio don't run Google run like an electric utility in the state. So <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> yeah, it was. Now, we, we should point out what they're referring to there is First Energy, who provided $60 million for bribes to rob us all of a billion dollars in unnecessary fees. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is Supreme Court Justice Jennifer Bruner upending the race to replace Maureen O'Connor as Chief Justice next year? Seth Richardson, this was a shock because Bruner is in her first year as a justice. I mean, she hasn't even completed six months as a Supreme Court justice, but her entry into this really changes the game because I think a lot of people presumed one of the sitting Republican justices Kennedy or DeWine would be a shoe in, but Bruner's got big time name recognition. Yeah, definitely big time name recognition and a really loyal following. I know, you know, anytime I was talking, I've been talking with people over the past couple of years about potential statewide candidates, her name often comes up, especially, you know, she's very popular among women too. And we've seen uh, Democrats do particularly well on these Supreme Court races. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I think having a Democratic, uh, uh, Chief Justice would definitely upend the court if she were successful. And she has the added benefit of being able to run from safety. So it's not like she's giving up a seat to run or anything like that. It, uh, 
it, it could end up being a pretty big gambit where, you know, we talked about it a little bit offline where if you have this kind of top of the ticket that is, you know, Nan Whaley, Tim Ryan, Jennifer Bruner, that that is a that is a pretty solid coalition that Democrats would be able to build at, you know, at their top of the ticket and be able to sell the voters. Well, and and that that's the key. If you look at what their ticket was last time, it was pretty lame. But if you have those three and who knows who's going to run for attorney general and all the others, it makes for a very interesting, a very interesting ticket, especially given what's gone on with some of the far right dissatisfaction with DeWine. Um, there, Jane Cahoon, there, there is a, a continuing move to require Supreme Court candidates to have their parties listed on the, the ballot. We have that weird system in Ohio where they run in partisan primaries in the spring and then their parties aren't listed in the November ballot. It's bizarre, um, but that could change. But also right now they're at the bottom of the ticket, right? Supreme Court races, judicial races are at the bottom of the ticket, but there's this move to move it to the top. So it would actually be a statewide ticket. Right. And so there there is a, a bill that moved through the Senate. And now apparently the Senate has put it in their latest budget proposal, which is hitting the floor this afternoon. But, you know, we should point out that the Republicans also are selectively just saying this only applies to the, the Ohio Supreme Court and the appeals court, not courts at the lower levels, common pleas or municipal. So it kind of undercuts their argument that this is all about transparency. But the bottom line is, okay, how would this affect Bruner? She didn't seem to be too concerned about it. Uh, you know, I think the thought is if the word, if the D is after her name, that, you know, Ohio being a red state, they will, they will not vote for her as readily you know, as they would, as they did in 2020 when she managed to oust a sitting Republican justice. So it, it's uh, it's interesting. Uh, we'll have to see. We were all shocked. I mean, th- when, when the press release came out that she was making an announcement Monday, we kind of deduced what it would be. But wow, what a what a what a change. I can't believe how much time we have devoted in the first six months of 2020 to all the elections that don't happen until <laughs> November 2021. You know, we should point out, too, that in addition to the chief justice seat, there are two other seats up on the Supreme Court, Judge Justice uh, Patrick Fisher. And I think um, uh, Justice Pat DeWine, who's interested in the chief justice's position on the Republican side, I think he's up as well. So things could, I mean, the this race is going to be, oh, there's going to be a ton of money spent on it. It's going to be really lively. Well, and what's interesting, if DeWine runs, does does the baggage or the, the pluses from um, Mike DeWine attach to him? It'll be interesting to see. Anyway, good stuff. We'll have lots to talk about over the next year and a half. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did Cedar Point figure out how to solve the labor shortage that was forcing the park to close several days a week? And is there a lesson here for all the other employers who keep whining about the shortage of workers and how it's crippling them? Laura Johnston, I love this story. Of course you do, because the answer is really simple. Yep, if you pay people more money, more people will work. So Cedar Point started offering $20 an hour. That's about double what they offered last year because they couldn't hire enough workers. People didn't want to work there and they couldn't get young people from abroad. Normally they get thousands of people from um, you know, other countries. And that visa program is really kind of shut down because of the uh, coronavirus. So they weren't able to get all those people. 
So they had to react to the fact they didn't have enough people. They decided they would close on certain Tuesdays and Wednesdays in June when they're normally open and they would have really limited hours. Obviously, people who had planned vacations around this got mad. And so Cedar Point reacted by raising the, the wages. And lo and behold, they said they're getting high quality applicants and they're they're going to be adding days back. The, the fascinating thing about this is this is capitalism, supply nice. and demand, right? So when there's a shortage of workers, the prices go up for the workers. That's all they had to do. Instead, they went to the government, said, stop giving them unemployment. Help me, help me, help me. Mike DeWine is committing a huge part of the stimulus to wiping out the uh, unemployment costs that go to employers. But th- this is simple. You want workers? Pay more money. They'll show up. And they have learned that. Would that all the other employers that are whining in Ohio follow suit, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like a pretty, you know, clear lesson here. Cedar Point obviously is a bigger um, operation than a lot of the small businesses, like, you know, a pizza shop that they have the deeper pockets, they can do this. But you got to wonder about Cedar Point because they didn't make a lot of money last year during the pandemic. They opened, but they had limited numbers that were allowed in. And I don't know if you guys remember, but like the end of 2019 season, they offered this $100 gold pass that was going to be for 2019 and 2020. And I bought it. A lot of our friends bought it. Um, It's still good for this year. So I'm planning a trip to Cedar Point on Saturday. We're not paying any more money. So I'm wondering how many people just keep going to Cedar Point based on this one pass they bought two years ago. Um, It'll be interesting to see. But clearly the economics work for Cedar yeah. Point or they wouldn't pay the $20. They can afford it because exactly. they've looked at what they'll what the attendance will be if they're open all the time and into the evening. You know, maybe they raise the price of some of their food or something, but right. the economics and, work. And they're doing this in their other parks too. They own Kings Island and they don't have to pay quite as much as Kings Island because it's closer to other centers. One thing about Cedar Point is it's in between Toledo and Cleveland. So you don't have a lot of people, you know, that are based in Sandusky that can work there. So they didn't have to go quite as high, but they are raising their prices. And yeah, it looks like, you know, and they need this labor force now. This is, this is their season. They can't afford to wait a couple months and hope that something irons itself out. But just think back to all the times Rob Portman, Mm -hmm. John Houston, and Mike DeWine have said, Oh, this is such a hardship for the employers. They're desperate for workers. And we've got all these jobs. The answer is, raise the salaries. Words that never came out of the mouths of Mike DeWine, John Houston, or Rob Portman. And we just had a story this morning that I believe um, Joey Morona posted about Chipotle, that they're raising their prices so they can pay their workers more. There you go. There's the answer. It's capitalism. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How are the Ohio Senate Republicans making the claim that their proposed 5% tax cut in the budget does not jeopardize the more than $3 billion in federal stimulus dollars that Ohio is getting that is conditioned on it not being used for tax cuts. Jane Cahoon, this seems like a lot of malarkey to me, but go ahead, take us through the logic. Well, they simply point out that they are not using any American Rescue Plan money in their budget plan. Uh, instead, the plan is to pay for this tax cut from the General Revenue Fund, and that's the one of the largest accounts in state government that receives revenue from income and sales taxes and, and pays basically for most of state government operations. But as Laura Hancock found out from an expert, 
to receive the billions that they're receiving in this stimulus money, the state is going to be required to report any revenue changes, including the cuts that are made between March 3rd and the end of 2024. And then the Treasury Department, the U.S. Treasury Department, will examine Ohio's revenues to ensure that they were high enough to pay for the tax cuts. Uh, and then, well, we don't know what's going to end up finally in the budget when the House and Senate compromise. The House wanted a 2% cut, Senate wants 5 uh, But But federal officials are going to compare revenues that flowed in in 2019, that which they'll use like as a base year before the pandemic. And then if if the revenue growth turns out lower than expected, then states are going to be expected to repay those stimulus funds since since the you know they're supposed to be used to help keep states afloat during during the pandemic, so um, you know it could it could be a legal uh, legal problem. Well, I think there's also problems with the replacing of money. You know, Mike Dewine wants to use some of the stimulus money to pay down the the unemployment debt, right? Because there's a lot of unemployment debt. The federal government could say, well. If you hadn't used our money to do that, you would have used your general fund money, but you cut taxes and don't have the revenue. There, there's any number of things they could spend that stimulus money on that the federal government could say, yeah, but you would have used your general fund to pay for that if you didn't have our money. The whole reason that they're providing this money to the state is to help them survive the costs of the pandemic, that to, to, to fill the gap for any hit they got. It's just, it's an incredibly risky move. They're full of beans when they say that there's no way it'll attach. Uh, tracing the money is very difficult. They're risking a lot of money to give a pay cut to Ohioans that nobody's asking for and isn't worth that much. It's this bizarre obsession that the Republicans in the state house have with always saying we gave people a state cut. Maybe they'll come to their senses when they come to reconciliation. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What does Dennis Kucinich say about the timing of the release of his long-promised book about his years as mayor and the work he has been doing to prepare for a run to be mayor again? Seth Richardson, this is a completely self-serving, very long book, championing himself as the people's person back in the day. But it's bizarre that it comes out, what, weeks before the deadline for filing papers to run for mayor this year. Well, I don't know that it's bizarre. I think Dennis might describe it as a bizarre coincidence, but I, I, I think it's pretty clear it's uh, anything but, right? I mean, uh, probably just like it was a coincidence that his book in 2003 was released just before he decided he was going to you know, mount a run for the presidency. Um, it's a pretty tried and true tactic where politicians will release books, release memoirs, whatever, uh, to basically you know drum up a little bit of earned media and uh, – get their name out there before they announce a run for something. And, you know, as Sabrina pointed, Sabrina Eaton pointed out in her story, he's been raising money and, uh, you know, definitely not saying no about running for uh, the mayor's race. So it, it looks like that. It's pretty clearly what he's gearing up for. And I mean, this, this book too, uh, you know, touches on a really hot topic that is going to be a big issue in the mayor's race. And that is, you know, Cleveland public power and, you know, the electricity utilities, both, you know, going to be a huge issue both in the mayor's race and it's a huge issue statewide just because of first energy. Yeah, the, but what's bizarre is 40 years ago, he fought off the the selling of what became first energy to or the Cleveland public power to first energy. Right. But 
but what's odd is that he's looking at that as to make him a champion because he fought first energy. And yet today, one of his biggest supporters is the George family, which is closely aligned with first energy. And so, you know, first energy is the bane of Ohio, right? They funded a $60 million bribery scheme that toppled the house speaker and created a giant scandal. And he's close to people that are tied to them now. I I think the other candidates in the race, if he runs, are going to be pounding him with his relationship to First Energy and say, what you did 40 years ago doesn't count. It's the fact who you were aligned with now that we're worried about. And you're aligned with a utility that has been still trying to take out public power. Yeah, no question um, about that. The, the thing I do kind of wonder, though, is do most voters associate him with the Muni Light stuff from 40 years ago? Because that, you know, it, you're, it's kind of hard to find a sentence without it being mentioned because that was kind of his uh, the, the biggest political thing that happened in his career. And, or do they associate it with Tony George? And do they know Tony George? And do they know Tony George was involved in, you know, some of the first energy stuff? And do some of these other candidates have the resources to really go after just a singular candidate as opposed to, raising their own name ID when we've seen that, you know, they don't necessarily have that. It's interesting you ask because his chief rival will be Kevin Kelly, the longtime city council president who has spent the last few years trying to investigate whether First Energy spent some of that illegal money, the $60 million on a nonprofit in Cleveland that was trying to take out Cleveland public power. I mean, this is one of Kevin Kelly's strong points. I am trying to protect Cleveland Public Power from First Energy today. The George family is involved in some of that stuff, and they're the biggest contributor that we know of to Kucinich. So Kelly has hundreds of thousands of dollars in his campaign war chest. I think he will actually make that known because can I, can I his jump chief in here, opponent please? is Kucinich, Jane Cahoon. I believe it was John Coniglia who did a big story on Kevin Kelly's connections to First Energy. So he's got to be careful if he if he's going to use that as a major attack point. He's he's vulnerable. I'm not arguing that. I mean, I think it could be a big uh, negative for Dennis Kucinich, but in in Dennis's case, his his friendship is with Tony George um, and Kevin Kelly's got, uh, it sounds like more direct ties to First Energy. Well, no, I I think what you're talking about is the guy who represented the nonprofit that was doing weird things with Cleveland Public Power Mm -hmm. also had worked for Cleveland City Council on a number of campaigns. Did he get money uh, from them? That's the tie. Um, I can't. I, I don't know if he got I mean, money. They hired some of him. the other people running for mayor also, you know, got first energy money. And we have not- somebody like Sandra Williams who voted for House Bill 6, you know. So I I just don't know how potent that whole thing is going to be. That's all I'm saying. In an odd way, it, it actually can – this could actually benefit Justin Bibb in a way because he can kind of come out and say – Hey, I'm actually the only candidate with no connection to First Energy. If you look at things, yeah, but um, the problem for Justin Bibb, he's the actually the only candidate that has no ties to anything. I mean, he's never been involved in any kind of government. He he has no experience whatsoever, which would make it very hard to walk into an operation like Cleveland and and run it. I mean, it's it, it's easy to say, yeah, I had nothing to do with that when you really haven't been anywhere on the landscape. 
And so I don't know how far that would resonate. And remember that last poll that we saw, no one knows who he is. Everybody knows who Kucinich is. Although far fewer people knew who Kevin Kelly was than knew who Brashear Jones was. So who knows? Got to move on. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is the Senate altering its budget proposal as they come in for a final vote before going to reconciliation with the House? Jane Cahoon, lots of stuff bubbled up yesterday, some of it concerning. Right. Now, we we do have changes that include like money for daycare, rape crisis centers and domestic violence programs, which are budget items, of course. And then we have the non-budget items, uh, which you could call them like new abortion restrictions and stricter monitoring of sex education. Uh, The abortion restrictions would affect two surgical abortion clinics in the Dayton and Cincinnati areas that operate now under variances because the legislature earlier passed a law that requires them to have a transfer agreement with a non-public local hospital in case of a patient emergency. But the variances allow them to have agreements with consulting physicians to assist them in case of an emergency. But this new budget item would further restrict those circumstances and require the physicians to have admitting privileges at a hospital within a 25 mile radius of the abortion clinic. And they would have to practice within a 25 mile radius of the clinic. And they wouldn't be allowed to teach at a publicly funded hospital. So um, the abortion rights group, of course, described this as as really extreme. And then on the sex education, uh, under current law, sex education has to stress that students abstain from sex until marriage. Um, it, it's supposed to teach that conceiving children outside wedlock is, is likely to have harmful consequences. And it's supposed to emphasize adoption as an option for unplanned pregnancies and th- those kind of requirements. But they, they made that even stricter by adding this amendment that says if a school district wants to go beyond that and teach about other issues in its sex ed program, it has to let parents know and it has to offer the name of any instructor, vendor, or curriculum. Parents could inspect books if they want to, and kids couldn't receive this education until the parent or guardian has, submit, has submitted written permission. So... Uh, Planned Parenthood said this is really out of touch with everyday Ohioans, uh, and you guys can feel free to jump in with a reality check on this one. How is any of that related to a budget? I mean, what happened to the rules that you had to have kind of a single subject? I mean, none of this is related to the budget. This is just, let's put in a whole bunch of extra stuff we want to do and claim it's the budget. So this is, I'm glad you brought that up because I really wanted to make this point. This happens every two years when we when we have a budget. They stick in all sorts of policy things. And regardless of how you feel about abortion or sex education or or making the Vaximilian registration information not a public record, you know, things like that that they're putting in, regardless of how you feel about them, this is a way to shove things through that do, and and avoid the whole public vetting that normally a bill would receive. So it's just a way to to bypass the public on this whole process. So I think this, you know, we always raise questions about it, and they always do it. Yeah, it's just it's strange. I mean, it's there's no nothing fiscal about it. You would think, and there have been times, right, where where things have been rejected in the courts because of that. Because they're, it's not single single subject, subject rule. Yeah, there. I think there have been some mixed rulings on that. I'd, I'd have to go back and do 
more research to refresh my memory. But um, yeah, sometimes they've been batted down on this, but I think in general, they, they just get away with it. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. The money just keeps rolling in to Ohio's casinos and racinos as the pandemic comes to an end. We talk about this once a month. What are the main numbers, <laughs> Laura Johnston? Well, we didn't hit a new record of all time, but this is the biggest May that we've seen. So the uh, it's the third biggest month overall behind March and April. The revenue is up 23% from the $169.4 million taken in in May 2019. Obviously, that's the last comparable month for gambling because of the pandemic. So up to $209 million in gambling revenue. Um, this is just... This, these, these numbers just keep going up. Um, the Jack Casino in Cleveland was up 25% to $22 million. Jack Thistledown was up 50% uh, to $19 million. And MGM Northfield Park was up 14% to $25 million. I mean, this is these are not small numbers. I don't think you guys go to the casino, but I wonder whether with the lifting of the uh, coronavirus restrictions, if they've removed all the plastic plexiglass, all the stuff that was separating people, or if they're keeping it for a while to be safe. We'll That's a good to, question. To check that out. Or people have to wear masks or, or, uh, or what? My bet is people don't have to wear masks. I just wonder whether they take down the plastic. I know in some school districts at the end of the school year, they started removing all those plastic shields to well, prepare our, for a our, more normal year next year. Pictures from the weekend at restaurants still showed some plastic barriers up. So that might, you know, depend on business by business what they choose to do. But I, I'm guessing the majority of people in the casino are not wearing masks and there's probably alcohol flowing. <laughs> yes. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Good stuff. Glad to have you on, Seth. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. 